You are listening to episode 71 of In Film We Trust. I'm Loom. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Ah! Hear that in the background? That's Chopin. Think it's a random insert? Think again. Because he'll be brought up in this episode, a movie that our latest guest, author Coy Hall, has brought us. Edgar G. Ulmer's 1934 Universal Pictures horror movie, The Black Cat. Now, does this have anything to do with Edgar Allan Poe's source material? Well, that's debatable, and something we will definitely be discussing. Among such topics as the themes of the movie, the horrors of World War I, 1930s Hollywood, and much, much more. So, please stay tuned as Coy Hall digs deep into his favourite horror movie of all time, The Black Cat. Last week we invited Felicia from the Seeing Faces in Movies podcast onto the show to discuss the cult classic The Swimmer, which also happens to be her favourite film of all time. For this week's episode, we invited on Coy Hall, another friend of the podcast, to talk about what they consider to be the greatest horror film of all time, The Black Cat. So, welcome to In Film We Trust, Coy. How are you today? I'm just thrilled thrilled to be here talking about The Black Cat and Bela Lugosi. I, I never get a chance to do that, so I'm very, very, <laughs> very happy right now. Do you just like try to talk to people on like the bus and the subway? Just about, oh, hey, do you guys know Bella Lugosi? Try to fit it in everywhere. I will read about Lugosi and tell my wife his, his the, the grades he made when he was in elementary school, you know, in his class, and she, she's tired of hearing about it. So, we're... where did this love of Lugosi come from then? You know, it started when um, I watched Dracula as right ve- yeah. very young. I don't, I don't, I don't even remember the exact time, but I mean, I was probably you know nine ten years old and i watched dracula and when he says come here you know it's hard <laughs> talking to uh, he's got that authoritarian voice doesn't he yeah when, mm. when, yeah when uh, van helsing they're having the battle of minds yeah. and i and that mo- i remember that moment i fell in love with him and my mom at the time had uh had, she she was getting me i was already interested in film at the time and she was getting me these biographies from the library and she would bring home like christopher lee and steve mcqueen and stuff and we had for some reason at the library and she, so they didn't have a lugosi one so she she bought the immortal count by arthur lennig and uh, it was a lugosi biography and i read that as a kid and the obsession has uh, been there ever since. I'm going to ask you, ask you the eternal question straight off: Lugosi or Karloff? <laughs> uh, n- not, not even a, a debate for me. It's Lugosi always. See, I thought, mm. I thought you were going there because when you said it was your introduction to Lugosi, for example, I, I never heard you mention Karloff. Is what is the preference? Is it purely that early stage of year when you were first exposed to Lugosi? Did you come to Karloff a lot I- later? I probably, you know, I experienced Karloff probably the first in How, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And That's exactly the same with me as well. Really? Yeah, so probably even at an earlier age. I love Boris Karloff. It, it's not It's not really like an either-or thing. Lugosi has a magnetism that Karloff doesn't. 
and um, there's a romanticism about him that Karloff lacks, and um, it's, it's just always been the preference. So it's not to put down Karloff. I love Karloff, too. Yeah, I reckon with Karloff, a lot of people were probably introduced through The Grinch because, you know, it's one of those perennial classics that yeah. you know, is shown to the next generation, the next generation far more dubiously. My introduction to Bella Lugosi, I'm not sure how ashamed I should be of this, but was his inclusion in Edward's Plan 9 from Outer Space. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> in fact, Edward Coy, I'm very proud of this fact. I have the DVD of that, and it's um, the front cover. It's like a colorized cover. The film's not colorized, but the cover is. And one of the subtitles on it says, almost starring Bella Lugosi. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> Don't um, worry, Coy, Wayne uses this anecdote anytime he can. <laughs> that's at, I think that's at least the third time I've brought it up, but I just, I just love that so much. Yeah, I, you know, that's a, a lot of people with Plan 9, also, I guess, Bride of the Monster with Ed Wood. Is yeah. A, yeah, exactly. was like, p- pull the strings, you know, and he's in his yep. little... Glenna Glenda. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's that. Um, is, is like his like monologue there. But So what did you think when it came to Tim Burton's Ed Wood? I love, me and Wayne both love that film. What did you mm. think of Tim Burton's Ed Wood? I, I like, it's my favorite Tim Burton movie. Oh, I, I think so as well. I can see why, yeah. Hmm. But it's a fictional characterization yeah. of Lugosi for me. I, I, I've, I've, I love Martin Landau, and yep. um, so I respect him, but that's not Lugosi in that film. Uh, that's not who he was as a person. It's not even remotely who he was as a mm-hmm. person. But it's mm-hmm. a good it's a good character, and if it gets people interested in Lugosi. Well, I think what's interesting with that film, I don't even think it's Ed Wood in that film, is it? J- the Johnny Depp character. It's very uh, much mm. a romanticized version. You're mm. not seeing the depth of the alcoholism, for example. Sure. He's, yeah. he's very much this. He's almost an avatar for the Hollywood dream, the never yeah. given up aspect of Hollywood. Also, the the kind of darker aspects of his life are more covered in the epilogue. How he yeah. basically just descended into making pornography, and his alcoholism got worse. That's yeah. kind of dealt with as the epilogue. I see Edward in that movie. He's he's portrayed as much more peppy, much more upbeat. Like Liam said, it's that kind of idealized vision of you know oh, I'm going to make a movie and I'm going to be a you know big yeah. star kind of thing. Yeah, and I and I think Lugosi is the same type of it's a caricature, you know, than rather than the the real person. Yeah, I do love Martin Landau's performance, but like a lot of people have said, he would he would never swear in in front of women. He was a much more kind of dignified character. I mean, I like the way that he's played. What did someone not say about him? They said the reason they loved him, especially his accent, is you don't sound like an American doing a Hungarian accent. You sound like a Hungarian trying not to do a Hungarian <laughs> accent. Yeah, yeah, and uh, um, I've always, always loved Martin Landau, so that's that was a great. Great mix for me, the two, the two of them. So, but do you know what bizarrely ties you in with that film, Ed Wood by Tim Burton? That was based on a book, and Coy Hall, who is joined with us today, is very much a author himself. He is the author of such classics as The Hangman Feeds the Jackal, A Seance for Wicked King Death, and The Promise of Plague Wolves. So, Coy. Explain yourself. How did you get into writing? What's this about? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I started when I, when I was a teenager. I really had like two things I wanted to do. I wanted to be a history professor and I wanted right. to write f- fiction. And I just kind of took those two paths and I and thankfully ended up doing both of those things. But I, with the fiction, one thing I wanted to do was set the type of stories I liked. And I like yep. really like pulp writing from like the 30s and 40s like robert e howard and clark ashton smith paul cade uh, maybe exactly his novel his novel fast one is a is a favorite novel but 
and I wanted to set the in the past, and that's that's what I've done. So all all my novels are set in the pretty distant past. The Seance for Wicked King Death is set in 1956, and I set it in 1956, by the way, because it's the year Bela Lugosi died. Oh, <laughs> so, an- so another Italian. Well, at the beginning of that novel, they're having a, he's, he works in a theater, a, a cinema, and they're showing a revival of Dracula a month after Lugosi's death. So. Yeah, well, since you set these books, like, you know, decades and decades ago, does it take more research, like, say, to avoid including any in- anachronisms? So do you actually have to do more research into the time period? Because you say you're a history buff from the sounds of things. You know, even when you study these periods and stuff, you, things will slip in. But you also, I mean, there, there's a balance there because you don't want it to be too real. Um, the, the trick is to make it seem real rather than be real. And so the audience has to think it's real. Like if you're writing about Vikings, you can't really write about Vikings. No. You, you want to write what people think about Vikings, <laughs> balance with right. truth. And so I, that's that's the trick of, of doing it. Verisimilitude, you know, that idea that, it seems real, even if there are anachronisms, especially in language and stuff. You don't want to write like a Puritan. So what you drew you to the pulp aspect of writing? Because, as you said, you're a history professor. You could very much have went into hard history and you know stuck to, quote-unquote, the truth. But, like, look, one of my favorite writers is James Elroy. Now, James Elroy is very much a writer who he's writing about the 40s, the 50s, the early 60s. Love James Elroy. He's a terrific writer, and he does for his books, each book, he'll do like a 600-page outline before he even starts writing the book. So how do you balance that when you're writing about history? I know you said you're writing historical fiction, so it's maybe changing, but as James Elroy said, he's writing also historical fiction. He's taking elements from the past or even people Mm -hmm. from the past. And I always it always makes me laugh. He says, somebody once asked him, why do you write about dead people? Because they're not libious anymore. They can't, (laughs) they can't, they can't sue him anymore. So how, how fun is it to play with the past? And have you ever included a a figure from the past. Absolutely. I one of my so in the Promise of Plague Wolves is set in sixteen eighty six in Austria. And I mean it's set in Styria, that part of yep. Austria. And all the places in that book are real. The bishop at the time that I talk about is the real bishop in the sixteen eighties and so, so um I don't think, you know, I'm gonna get in trouble. People saying I don't think you're being sued on, Yeah. <laughs> tough, pretty tough on him. But yeah, I, th- I th- but that's you're just kind of weaving all those things together. It's it's an art of you know you're taking some real stuff and you're taking some made up stuff yeah. and if 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 somebody reads it and it and and it seems real, you kind of spin this um, this this illusion for yeah. them, then okay. then you did it did it successfully. And I think Elroy does that really well with you know the. 1940s and 50s LA and um, when it, when he's writing about that scenes from like the Black Dahlia in my head when they go down to Mexico one of my favorite novels <laughs> when they go down to Mexico and stuff you know <laughs> these pl- the, the, these crazy places that they're going to in the book I you know I didn't look to see if that was real and I really don't care if that place was real it mm-hmm. seemed real and that's all that mattered in the end. he paints a picture where it feels truthful and that's enough for the book he's writing. Yes, and that's what I that's what I tried to do. It, it feels real, you know, and some of so, it's real and some of it's not. You would have to try to disentangle all that stuff if you went through the book to see what's real and what's not. One of my favorite book to film adaptations is *L.A. Confidential*. Now I know James Elroy hates that film now, and he says he can be truthful in hating that film now because the director of that film not too recently died. But you know, like <laughs> uh, like *Apocalypse Now*. 
Silence Alarms, Herzog's Nosferatu, and, you know, Stephen King's The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. I know, again, Stephen King hates that film. But they are films, they are book-to-film adaptations I really like. What are the ones you, you as a writer, that grabbed you? I have a, I have a couple from the 30s that I, and 30s and 40s that I, I really love from book to film. Um, one of my favorite novels and one that had a, a big impact on me was The Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and uh, by H.G. Wells, and that that was it's it's it should be talked about more as part of that golden age in the late nineteenth century of 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 horror novels with Dracula and um, Dorian Gray and and Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde and all yeah. that. I mm-hmm. think and Moreau Moreau had this episode I remember reading when I was a kid where he just. Uh, Wells says something about how the protagonist just left on the island for so many weeks, and then he just comes back, and you're like, what the hell happened? You know, I'm doing the six weeks on the island. And I remember that just screwed me up as a kid. Imagine, I just loved how he did that. And uh, so it's one of my favorite books. But uh, and as an adaptation, The Island of Lost Souls in, in 1933, but that Earl Kenton directed. Okay. And Lugosi's in, and Charles Lawton. Is my it's my favorite adaptation of that. I think I think the less the less said about the '90s version, the better. <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do like the Richard Stanley like documentary about the the, the '90s version of the, where he's talking about Val Kilmer being. Uh, I watched that because like Richard Stanley was on set for about it was like a, he he spent years preparing and he was on yeah. set for like a couple of weeks and then he was kicked off and then remember, that whole yeah, film yeah. like you can't blame kind of filmmakers so much because it was such a clusterfuck trying to get that film made. Yeah, I've seen analysis. I've seen that Lost Souls documentary. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It pretty much it almost killed his interest in the industry, Richard Stanley, didn't it? He left for like 20 years. He made some like occult documentaries and stuff, I believe. He eventually came back to make The Color of Space with Nicolas Cage, yeah. which, which I think is actually a decent film. Now, look, it's not going to blow your mind, but <laughs> if you see Richard Stanley, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and then you see the fallout after that, and then he essentially is not on the perimeter of anybody in, high up in Hollywood. Look, The Color of Space is actually a decent film. Did you ever see that film? I did not. I have not oh. watched that. I have. I love his movie Hardware right? and uh, Dust Devil. But I have not watched the new one. I am, not, and this doesn't win me many friends. Friends, but I do not like Nicolas Cage. Oh, Wayne! <laughs> Wayne is the Nicolas Cage super I, fan here. I love Nicolas Cage. He's, <laughs> I'm, he's I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I'm one of those people where I love Nicolas Cage. But if you were to say to me, I don't like him. He doesn't do anything for me. I'd say I completely understand why, especially when he went through his. Kind of his lowest yeah. phase when he was, you know, he was paying off all the castles and all the exotic <laughs> animals he had. He would just do anything, and his talents were really wasted. But no, I totally understand why someone wouldn't uh, like them. But as an author, Coy, what are your kind of general thoughts on adaptations? Because a lot of people say, you know, they say one picture is worth a thousand words. They say the book is always better than the film. But Lee mentioned Apocalypse Now before. I've read Heart of Darkness. I've seen Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, one of my favorite films of all time. Not that huge on the book, actually. I think that's a superior... I think that's actually a superior adaptation. Same Mm. with Fight Club. Fight Club is one of my favorite films of all time. I read the book... uh, I think it was in lockdown, actually. I liked the film more than the book. Chuck Palahniuk, who wrote the book, thinks the film is actually better than his book version. So what's your thoughts on the kind of adaptation process? And would you like one of your books to be adapted for the big screen? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd love to have one of my books adapted, but the my, my thoughts on it would be that 
I really, I really don't mind when there's a difference between the film and the book. I don't really get hung up on that. I think that they're two different art forms. It's two different animals, and they should be treated as such. You cannot, mm-hmm. um, like I love Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, but it's, it's I know Stephen King doesn't, and and he left out a lot of elements from it. But you know, it it works. The film works as a film, and the book works as the book. Well, Coy, if you don't <laughs> mind things being different, well, the original Edgar Allan Poe story was first published in August eighteen forty three, in the Saturday Evening Post. And as you said, you don't mind things being different. Well, <laughs> is there any similarities between this and? Ulmer's 1934, The Black Cat. I think they both have a black cat in them. They both have... <laughs> that's the, the, they both have a black cat. Um, I'll tell you, so in the, in the story, the man kills his wife, but he also kills her cat, and uh, he stuffs them in the wall together, okay. and uh, the black cat starts making noise again you know so it's a it's, it's a deathless animal it's, and so it the one that's there's a similarity there with the movie because Lugosi kills a black cat and it comes back to life mm-hmm. in this it's deathless and so the, the deathless <laughs> black cat that's it <laughs> as far as far as things go i do like how the director of this film edgar g ulmer referenced years later after this film he admitted that edgar Allan poe's name was only credited to the film to draw financial and marketing attention it was right. never written really as a adaptation it was merely or almost after the fact and they're like you know what i think by sticking edgar Allan poe's name on here we could probably get a few more ticket goers you know i i think that says a lot about and in, in that 30s they didn't trust in horror as a genre no. Right, there was no trust in horror as a genre, so you had to tie it to this respectable literature. So you have, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, yeah. Isle of Lost Souls, which is uh, Moreau, and you have Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde, and you have the Murders in the Rue Morgue with Lugosi at Universal a couple years prior. And so I think it was that they did not let. If you look at those, even Freaks from that time was based on mm. a short story called Spurs, you know, that was popular in the 20s. Like, they all have these yeah. literary precedents. So I think that that was part of it, too. Like, there was no respect for this as a genre, so you tie it to this honorable name, you know. Freaks was directed by Todd Browning. Todd Browning done the 1931 version of Dracula with Bela Lugosi. Yeah, well, when I watched The Black Cat for the first time, I, I was kind of clued in in the opening credits. I'm sure you noticed that it doesn't say based on the story by Edgar <laughs> Allan Poe. It says suggested by Edgar Allan Poe. Something right. Because for me, I mean, we're talking 1934 here. I thought, is that just what they called it then? Because now we'd say based on the story by blah, blah. I'm like, back then was suggested just the kind of term they used? And no, it's not. It's a unique um, unique way to phrase it there, uh, suggested by. I mean, it's, it's interesting you say about how they didn't trust horror because 30s was kind of almost a golden age of horror. Mm. Like I was saying to Liam at one point, I love the kind of interwar period. It produced some fascinating films, especially in 34, because this is pre-Hayes Code. I think yeah. the Hayes Code came into force around about here. So this was the last year until sometime like in the 60s when you could get away with a lot of stuff that you wouldn't for a while. But in the 30s, you like I say, you had Dracula, you had Imhotep is another big one. I think Bride of Frankenstein was the year after this, which is 35, one, yeah. one of those films that's regarded as like actually one of the finest sequels ever made. Another Boris Karloff film. Well, the Hayes Code was enacted in 1934, 
until mm. 1968. A lot of stuff could be snuck into films, you know, pre-code films in that time. Yeah. And I mean, you even get like bits of nudity and things like that that you wouldn't yeah. imagine being in a, a 1930s film. The thing is, the funniest thing about the hair code is it wasn't even just like nudity and sex and violence. It was the most ridiculous things. Like in It Happened One Night, the Frank Capra film. Great film. They try to they try to like hitch a ride. Clark Gable can't do it, so she walks over and kind of like she like pulls a thing up to the knee. That the that's the kind of thing that was outrageous. You couldn't right. have things like, for example, we love anti heroes in films. They're some of the most interesting characters. You couldn't have that in films back then. It had to be good had to win, evil had to lose. You had to you, know, you yeah. couldn't have anything. You couldn't have any kind of moral gray area. So it was. A very censorious time to make films, yet we have, you know, things like Bride of Frankenstein, very fascinating films coming out of this period. I think that, you know, Freaks is a movie like that, too, that yeah. is very, very daring, where the 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 beautiful Cleopatra, you know, it's, it's saying the right. person that's beautiful on the outside is ugly on the inside. <laughs> and the people who are regarded as freaks are the, are the good people. And it's a, it was a very subversive film, I think. Uh, well, I think I think that's the correct term, subversive, <laughs> like with Wayne saying the Hayes Code. But prior to that, or even during the Hayes Code, what makes it interesting is how you subvert what is formally accepted. And I think... And I'm not arguing for constraints on cinema, but when there is constraints on something, how you maneuver around that or how you go under that and still say the same thing, but just through metaphor, it makes it very much more interesting looking back for as the cinema goer, because there's a scene in this film where Peter and Joan are kissing. And I think Boris Karloff is gripping a nude statue. Okay, that, that's, that, that's very phallic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, very suggestive. You know, I mean, he's 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 obviously aroused by watching them. I think what's interesting about Almer and the Black Cat too is that not only do you can you get away with things because of the code, but the the head of the studio, Carl Limley, was vacationing in Germany at that time. <laughs> And he didn't see it until after it was made, you know. So, it, so I mean, they, 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 like, they, he was away, and so they got away with a lot of stuff there too. You know, what's interesting about Carl Limley? Okay, his nephew was involved or married to this woman, and the director of this film, Edgar G. Ulmer. Now, you would think. This film, The Black Cat, it was Universal Pictures' biggest film of 1934. You would have thought Ulmer would have went on to a great financial success, a great career in Hollywood. But this affair, this affair with the studio head's nephew's wife, it pretty much blacklisted him from Hollywood and relegated him to Poverty Row for pretty much the entirety of his career. Because I was looking at his filmography, and I have to be honest... Uh, other than this, The Black Cat, which I watched for this podcast for the first time, and because I'm a big film noir guy, the only other film I think I've seen of his is Detour, which is actually a great B-movie film noir. Shirley Kessler, right, the the, the script supervisor, <laughs> yeah. is was married to Carl Limley's nephew, Max Alexander, and he did steal her away, I guess you, I guess you would say, from Max Alexander. <laughs> And uh, yeah, he was. And his, I mean, his career never um, recovered from that, ever. And he would have gone on, at least I think in the form of like James Well, I think he would have had something, he would have stepped up, like Well steps up the showboat eventually, you know. Yeah. He didn't, Well didn't want to do horror movies, and so he finally got Showboat, a musical that he wanted. Um, I think that um, Almer would have gone. Yeah. 
in in that direction, possibly. But Coy, you are the the black cat aficionado here, and I was looking at this. I was looking at the whole, you know, the relation of how many adaptations of the black cat. Loosely, we were saying adaptations here, and I think the only other one I've seen is Martino's "Your Vice Is a Locked Room" and only I have the key, which is a great title, I have to say. But I've never, I've never, for whatever reason, seen the Fulci one. I know Roger Corman done one. Would you like to expand on, you know? all the adaptations or the loose adaptations and what differs between each one. What immediately comes to mind is the Corman Poe cycle of movies in the 60s when Roger Corman with Vincent Price and with you know Richard Matheson writing, which is this great trio, yeah. had uh, The Fall of the House of Usher. And that mm-hmm. became a hit and they did The Pit and the Pendulum. And yeah. then they ended up doing those for a decade. And there's one that's an anthology movie like Amicus the style of Amicus in the 70s was like three or four short stories called Tales of Terror in 62 and uh, the Black Cat is is one of those segments um, it's I guess where it's a shorter version of it it can be yep. slightly slightly more faithful to it but uh, it's not that faithful and the Fulci version is not it has a black cat. As a black cat, <laughs> that's right. That's is it, it as faithful it o- as this one? It opens with that shot. Um, it's it's about equally unfaithful, <laughs> I would say. Uh, with the, the it does start the Fulci movie. I love the opening where it starts with the black cat walking along the the wall at the, at the beginning of the the movie. So what I did notice in 1941, only seven years after this one, I believe there was also another Bela Lugosi starring black cat film. Didn't star, mm-hmm. didn't co-star Boris Karloff, and I know it was played way more for laughs. What is the differences, and does it really compare? I've ne- it's, a, it's a film I've no, never seen. It's, and Lugosi doesn't even get a starring role in that. Oh, I mean, he plays not. like a, no. But by that point, he had been. If he was starring in a film, it would be for Poverty Row, yeah, yeah. Uh, like mon- Monogram usually. But if he was doing anything with Universal, it was always like a side role. He's like the butler or whatever. Um, he's like a red herring type. And that's that's the way that the, the 41 um, Black Cat plays out. It's uh, a murder mystery type of story, and it just has nothing, nothing to do with Poe, and it's, it doesn't. Uh, it's it's not near nearly as good as as Almer's version. But I guess it was a title that made money. So I think it was Basil Rathbone that had the the lead role in it, who was another right. big horror film star. You had like your Karloffs and your Lugosi's, yeah. Basil Rathbones. And I like how people said this is a 1941 film. It's another adaptation of The Black Cat. <laughs> also, nothing to do with the story, but it has right. Lugosi in it again. It's a kind of zany comedy this time, and it's just got nothing to do with The Black Cat. So it's like they did it twice. They got right. Lugosi in a Black <laughs> Cat film twice, and it's got nothing to do with the story right. other than having a Black Cat in it. Both by Universal Pictures. It, there's such loose adaptations that the black cat is almost incidental to the plot because at one point when the black cat pops up in this it has its unfortunate incident we'll say you kind of forget about it for the rest of the time and it just kind of pops up periodically almost to just remind you that it's kind of still there. <laughs> and that Lugosi's scared of cats, right? That's, mm-hmm. what, that's kind of the ones that one leads of the to some absolutely theme. hilarious scenes I have yeah. to admit. And it, and it does lead me to an interesting piece of trivia as well because in America, black cats, you know, have long been associated with bad luck because they're associated with witches. But in the UK, this film was actually called The House of Doom because here, black cats are a symbol of good luck rather than bad yeah. luck. So, call, so calling Very it the black cat, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't set it upright. Right. Yeah, I've always been really interested in Lugosi with the black cat scenes because they are regarded as funny now. His over the top reactions to them. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, what my interpretation of that is, is Lugosi had actually fought in the First World War for Austria, yeah. Yeah. Austria, Austria, Hungary, that empire. And uh, my interpretation is that he's he's portraying somebody who fought in the war, and that he's kind of channeling PTSD, shell shock, mm. um, because. You know, I mean, cats, especially in these areas, these war-torn areas in World War One, cats would, you know, are, become scavengers and they'll actually eat the dead. They'll eat dead people. They eat corpses, um, which could could leave um, this could trigger you. And I always kind of, I've never read that Lugosi felt that way about it, but I've always interpreted it that it's this kind of his over-the-top reaction is like a shell shock type of triggered reaction back to the First World War. It does make a lot of sense because this film's 1934, that interwar period. Most of the people who survived the war are still alive at this time, so the wounds mm-hmm. are still very, very fresh. So I'm thinking that was a lot of Lugosi's performance because it is kind of over the top. He delivers it in that very theatrical way. I think a lot of films during this time, I first really noticed it when my wife and I watched King Kong from 1933, and you think, why are the actors acting in this way? It's very strange, and you realise, oh, most of them are theatrically trained they are trained to act on stage the way they project their voice the way they move it's supposed to be in front of a theater audience so watching films from the 30s when people are really moving into films then they're still kind of acting like they're on stage like the way they deliver the lines especially well you're acting for an audience and you're acting with your whole body you're not acting for the medium shot or the close-up like you know Mm -hmm cinema is projected for and I think that comes into even fruition when we go to a Laurence Olivier or something and they're acting with their whole self rather Mm. than now where all actors and for a long time now but they're more conscious of acting for the screen acting for what they're seeing in the medium show well, I, I want to say something about that too, because I'm very interested in 1930s and that style, that style of acting. Yeah. And I think that's something that's important to note about that is that realism is not the goal. Hmm. They are not trying to be realistic. So I, I think when people will criticize acting in the 30s, it's like it's like looking at um, a work by Picasso and saying mm-hmm. it doesn't capture photographic realism. Well, of course, it doesn't capture photographic realism. It's missing missing the point, you know, and that's certainly not the intention of that. Yeah. Um, acting and filmmaking were were not supposed to be realistic in yeah. the 20s and 30s. Um, that was never the goal. They're supposed to be larger than life. I think when you get into you know in Italy like neo realism in the 1940s, with like the Bicycle Thief, movies like that. Yeah, when that comes in, that's what kind of you get into the modern movie. Because it starts in art cinema yeah. and trickles down to you know genre stuff, but the, before that, it was supposed to be mannered and theatrical and over the top, and it was not supposed to be real. And I th- I think that's an important thing when you go into a, a film in the 30s or even back in the, especially in the 1920s silent film, that realism is not the goal in the sets. Realism isn't the goal in the fights. It's not the goal in the dialogue. It's supposed to be different than real life. It's great that you use the word realism because when I was reading about this, I did wonder, are there any other reasons why a lot of these films were so over the top? And I came across a perfect piece of information. Back in the early 30s, the Great Depression 
was still very much happening in America, and people were going to the cinemas as a form of escapism. So you don't want to go to a cinema during that time and see the real world depicted. That's the reason you're in the cinema, to escape from that. So these people being very theatrical, being very over-the-top, people like Lugosi and Karloff, who were talking like no actors a lot of these people would have seen before, that's the kind of thing they wanted. They wanted to escape their lives for an hour, an hour and a half. So having them being very theatrical, having them being very mm-hmm. over the top, it worked better because that's what people wanted to see. They wanted to see different. They didn't want yeah. realism in their films. I think it's almost operatic in that way. Like right. an opera never is supposed to seem real. It's another world you're watching occur, yeah. you know, at that point. But you're also conveyed an idea. And as you said, you know, realism is just another stroke of the brush that came primarily, you know, say the Italians, for example, and then it filters down so like when we or like our modern audience want to look back on films from the 20s 30s whatever decade from the past and they want to say look this isn't realistic people aren't acting in a certain way we expect but that's not really what they're going for they're using a different color on the palette they're not trying Mm -hmm. to convey what you and i see in our day-to-day life they're conveying an idea rather than the reality of something yeah, and almost very influenced by expressionism in Germany in the twenties. I mean, yeah. he was he was a disciple of you know F. W. Murnau. That's who he was, art director for Murnau. That's who he came to California with yeah. right back when he made um, I think Sunrise, and that is the the era he learned. And ex- and if you look at an expressionistic painting, it, it's not photographic realism. Yeah, and I think, but I I think that if you judge it on its own terms that way. Um, it's more fair rather than say this is a primitive version of a modern film. Well, I think the aesthetic of this film, it's actually a tremendous work of art. The DP of this film is John J. Meskel. Now, he done The Invisible Man and Bride of Frankenstein. Now, this film, as you said, it is indebted to German Expressionism. The Cabinet of Dr. Kalinagri, uh, Nosferatu from 1922. Also, I believe, now you may be able to clear this up because there's some contention here. Now, director of this film, Edgar G. Ulmer, was reported to have worked on design for Fritz Lang and especially Metropolis. Now, some people don't believe there is actually a credit for Ulmer here. Do you think you can clear that up? Is there any proof that he worked with Lang? I don't think it's true. Um, I think he was kind of spinning his own legend and building it up because right. he did come from that part of the world in that industry. He said he worked on, like, um, the Gollum in 1920 yeah. and... Um, stuff like that too there's no evidence of that and i think there would be evidence of that i don't it doesn't make sense but he did come from that school of filmmaking and he did work with fw murnau right so i mean he does have the credentials even he doesn't have to lie about (laughs) well films like nosferatu and the black cat and frankenstein bride of frankenstein they're the kind of films where the dps and the set designers are some of the great heroes of the films because you think back to films like this the way they looked are so distinctive like the nosferatu is a silent film you don't have you know dialogue people speaking but the way the characters move and the way the shadow like everyone knows there were like the shadows lengthening and stuff like that so it's things like that that really brought those films to life and some like the black cat what I liked about it is the house that they're in for most of the film just looks weird. It looks off. It doesn't look like a house anyone would actually design or live in. But that's kind of 
part of yeah. the effect because it's not jump scares. It's not the kind of horror films we get in the more modern day. This is kind of the birth of psychological horror where kind of little subliminal messages are just there to kind of mess with your head. Little things that you see here yeah. and there, even little things that you hear. I'm going to call bullshit on this way. Now, this film, the interior design, is very much influenced by Art Deco, which was massive in the 1920s. And I would argue here, I love Art Deco. I love mid-century modern architecture. I love Art Deco architecture. And now, look, Art Deco, what is Art Deco for, you know, listeners who may not be too familiar with the 1920s? Well, it's a design that differs from previous, more ornate styles and opts for relatively simple, symmetrical, and repetitious patterns. Look, if you want to kind of parallel it with Tim Burton's Gotham. There is a there's an argument to be made there. And I would actually argue that's what separates this film because mm-hmm. we have our two leads or three leads at the start who are in a train, they're on their honeymoon and they are traveling to this destination and when they get off the train, they get onto this bus coach and the bus coach crashes and you think, you see this house in the distance and you're going to think, okay, this is going to set up as a traditional 1930s gothic type horror. But this sets itself apart, and I think that's what separates this film is it doesn't go for the easy ride. You could very much make this as a gothic mansion, but we have this really modernistic, art deco-styled house, and that's a bold and brazen decision they made there. Yeah, and I think that if you contrast it with Dracula, where at the beginning, if you watch 1931 Dracula, the first, you know, whatever, 10, 10 minutes of the film when um, Renfield goes to the castle yeah. and all that, you don't know where you're at in time. It could be the 19th century, and you don't know where you're at in time until they go to the theater and a car goes by. Yeah. And it signals present day, um, but this one from for, you know it's, it's obviously present day, and they the houses could could have easily been a castle on yeah, on top right. of that old fort, but it was this ultra modern Bauhaus Art Deco type of um, design that Almer did. Almer designed that. Even the radio, I love when like. Karloff's playing the radio and it's got this like you know this like avant-garde radio and stuff that he had I mean it's just it's a movie with wonderful details if you just you can just watch the movie one time and then watch it again and again and you'll see different things each time because there's so much care put into that Karloff house. So you're saying with the design, the reason it was so weird is because it was so modern, it was so new, it was like a trend people hadn't caught up with it yet and that's maybe why it looked alien to so many people. It it looks alien to us now. I think it would have looked pretty stylish. Um, and if you watched that in 1934, it would have struck you as um, very, very artful and stylish. This film has an important historical backdrop. What is the war that our characters reference in this film that we're about 18 years removed from? It starts out with the looking back at the first world war world war one is the is the backdrop for it vertigast that's the um lugosi character had been under the command of polzig that's the karloff character yeah and polzig had so for for the hungarian military and polzig they they were fighting the russians and polzig had handed over the fort to the Russians. He had betrayed the Hungarians. And because of that, the tro- a lot of the troops are killed and a lot of them are taken prisoner. Lugosi Vertigast was um, taken prisoner and shipped off to Siberia where he remained in a, a military prison for the duration of the war and after the war. 
and that's the the backdrop. So at this point, it's in real time. Yep. So it's 1934, and um, they're referencing back to I guess what um, 1916, a couple years into the war, when when Polzik had betrayed his men, including Lugosi. I believe Lugosi's character did he reference he spent 15 years essentially in a Russian gulag in Siberia. Yeah, and so he's just like freshly out, which I love that. I love that scene <laughs> so much on the train when he's like, I have returned. You know, um, it's like nobody returns, but I, and he got he almost like a superhuman, like I made it through the you know the prison i have returned but that was something i really liked about the dialogue have of the film how a lot of lines which are not they're not sinister at all they're very normal lines but they're positioned in a very sinister way like you see he just walks onto the train and just goes i have returned and there's a kind of a pause like <laughs> who are you where have you returned from and why would we need to know this things like that because they say kind of ordinary lines but i liked in this film how a lot of lines were left to sit afterwards a character will right. say a line will see a reaction the score will be playing in the background and it really highlights it really emphasizes what the characters see even if it's not that scary or not that profound the way it's delivered and the way it's left to sit for the right, other characters like the sin- sinister like spin on yeah wait, wait, there's one there's a wonderful line in the movie when they're when they're playing chess and peter allison david manners character the novelist is trying to telephone and karloff he says the phone is dead and karloff says C Vetus, even the phone, even the phone is dead. You know? I, just, I, I, I love, I love that. It's it's so good. And Karloff, just the way he delivers, he, you can tell he just and he kind of gets the the double meaning of the line. You know, and I, I love that. Well, Lugosi's Vetus has a great line when Peter Allison and his wife are traveling in the train at the start, and I think he steps out and he's helping with luggage on the the carrier above. And yeah. she, and his wife and his wife gets a, a scare, and Vetus just calmly says, "After all, it is better to be frightened than crushed." <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and if you were like, I always think if you were a real person in that situation, like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? And I'm, what, who says that? Um, well, somebody give Lugosi I, some antidepressants, please. <laughs> um, like, what are, I always like, what does Peter Allison think at that? point you know like did he just threat is he threatening my wife and then he wakes up you know like Lugosi's like stroking her hair when she's sleeping and I love I love the look on David Manor's face he's got a very realistic look yeah <laughs> what, what in the what are you doing you know because he's like this very creepy scene but well Peter Allison in this film he is set up as a pulp mystery writer and somebody quite cleverly observed was he must be the the worst pulp mystery writer of all time because he doesn't even realize he's in a mystery himself <laughs> <laughs> right yeah um and i think that's a kind of a funny in joke too with the the writer paul kane or peter rurick who wrote, wrote i think his name was like george sims in real life paul kane's his pseudonym for pulp fiction yeah and he wrote fast one which is yeah. a kind of hard-boiled noir novel and influence on you i do love that novel yeah i do so do you see a bit of yourself in Peter Allison? Um, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> like the most, most ineffective. Uh, Man- David Manners, I, got, I have to say this, let's run the subject. David Manners plays that role in several films, right? Oh, not okay. always a mystery novel, but it's Jonathan Harker in Dracula. Yeah. 
Oh, okay. And and of course he's like the assistant in the mummy, and he is uh, in the mystery of Edwin Drood, and he's like, I mean, he's like, it's just a, it's a death kiss with Lugosi <laughs> is another murder mystery he's in, um, but he's always he's he's an interesting actor because I feel like he's a person who always plays it as written, and if you don't write for him to be interesting, he's not going to be interesting. He's going to be completely right. wooden. If you watch him as Harker, he he just reacts. Yeah. He just kind of stands around Mina and reacts. This one, at least, he's more vibrant in this movie, and he it kind of has more of a personality. But I always feel if you don't write yeah. the characters' reactions into the script for David Manners, you're not going to get anything in return from him. So he's, he's, the, he's, he's the kind of guy that doesn't really add a lot to a role. Like the role has to be all there on paper in order for him to make it work play it as written yeah and it, it just that contrast if you watch this movie and dracula you can see that it's got his two ways of going about it and dracula's clearly very thinly written the harker role well you were mentioning the the, the war backdrop to this film coy and i've got a, a great quote from wardgeist to Polik. he says you sold Mormoris to the Russians. You scurried away in the night and left us to die. Is it to be wondered that you should choose this place to build your house, built upon the ruins of the masterpiece of destruction, a masterpiece of murder? The murderer of 10,000 men returns to the place of his crimes. So that's an interesting quote. And what is that quote saying? Are we, as you mentioned before, Lagos, he was uh, in the war himself, and you think he's playing the character with a sense of PTSD. Could you draw thematically that in this film we're drawing on the hangover of war, the consequence of war, and the the pain that goes on through the years after a war ceases? I absolutely think that's intentional. Yeah. This is the f- this is the first horror film, not the first movie, but the first horror film that deals directly with the war. Yeah. The the Great War that actually confronts it head on and the psychological damage of that war and the old angers of things like between, you know, these two characters. And it was based partially on a true story on there's a fort in Verdun that the, the Germans had accidentally caught on fire. Okay. And um, they were they were lighting their coffee. They would drink coffee, but they were light. This is the real story, yeah. not the film. They were lighting their coffee with flamethrowers, <laughs> as you do, I guess, in war. <laughs> Overkill, man. You have to use the tools at your disposal. Right. Yeah, I mean, whatever. I don't want cold coffee. But they actually caught the fort on fire, and they ended up killing 600 people. Right. And they were all buried down in the cellar of the fort. And so the impression is with Polzik's place that down there in the cellar, you know, he keeps those women down in the cellar and stuff. But there are also all the men that he betrayed down there who weren't taken prisoner by the Russians. That This is a giant tomb that he's built, that he's built his home on, which makes him... It's it's interesting that he's an occultist. Polzig in the in the films an occultist, so he's drawn back to this energy of this mass grave, you know, and that's intentionally why he builds his house on it because he does hold these ritualistic orgies and sacrifices and things. Well, he's kind of the personification of evil, and I believe Polzig, played by Boris Karloff, is based on the English occultist Alistair Crowley. Now, Alistair Crowley used to be a big deal over here. He was dubbed over here in the press the wickedest man in the world. He was into ceremonial magic and he created a religion called Thelema. 
He was one mm. of the people here. Here's funny, a nice little bit of trivia. He was one of the people featured on the Beatles album cover of Sgt. Pepper's. And his motto, do what thou will, was inscribed on the vinyl for Led Zeppelin three album. Now, Alistair Crowley had a huge estate here in Scotland, where we are, and Jimmy Page, guitarist of Led Zeppelin, bought that many years ago. So there is that tie. Jimmy Page was famously into Alistair Crowley, and I don't know how deep our fans are, but one of the greatest short film directors of all time is a man called Kenneth Anger, and Kenneth Anger is famously a a devotee of Alistair Crowley. And I think that influence goes into, because that's something that Almer certainly would have been aware of and in, in, in the 30s and I I, I want to kind of add something to that too that I that I think is an influence for him so when he was in Germany in the in the 20s occultism was um, a big deal there and somebody who the, you, you were talking earlier Wayne about the, the set designers on these um, German expressionistic films and Alban Grau is the, the set designer and the artist who really designed Nosferatu and the posters and the look, everything about Nosferatu's Alban Grau. And he was a real occultist who actually had a rivalry with um, Crowley, who didn't like <laughs> Ooh, Crowley. Did and Alban Grau even wrote, but he wrote occult texts like The Visions of Cheops and stuff. And he actually had several books. But he was a real life occultist. And his company, Prana Film, which was part of the, one of the founders of Prana Film. Okay was supposed to make occult films. And if you watch Nosferatu, it has real occult symbolism in it. Like when Nock, the real estate agent's reading the letter from Count Orlock, it's written in Enochian, yeah. you know, like the angel language of John Dee and stuff. And that's, those are actual, it's actually written in Enochian. But I think that he's influenced by characters like that too. Not Alban Grau wasn't, you know, seen as evil like that, but that was part of Almer's kind of intellectual world you know and in, in, in the 1920s and it was in vogue uh, to to be to be into those things and experimenting with those things so i think he would have had some pretty uh, deep knowledge about about that stuff so coy tell me if you think this is true or not when i was reading about the black cat we have these whole satanic ceremonies it turns out karloff is actually the kind of leader of this ceremony I had actually read that this was the first mainstream Hollywood film to actually depict Satanism. Do you think that's yeah. actually true? There are other films around the time doing the same thing. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if it's true about Satanism. I what, but it actually depicting a black mass yeah. though um, it was that. That's what I've read as well. That this is the first depiction of a black mass. It was the first to depict the Satanic cult. Okay, interesting. Well, yeah. we've spoken about how horror films kind of reflect whatever's going on at the time, whether it's, for example, the Red Scare or it's the Vietnam War. And I'm thinking we're talking about occultism in the early 20th century. So do you think this film was a depiction of that? Because when you see cults like this in films, it's always sacrificing people and it's always rituals and drinking blood and things like this, where I'm sure there's probably some of them which are much more innocuous than that. But that's not <laughs> what you want to see on screen. I don't think occultism was like su- such a big thing in the in America in the 1930s that people would have, you know, looked at it, was, looked at it like Almer was tapping into that. I think Almer personally was trying to think of something sadistic and to, mm-hmm. to put on screen and like this is the worst thing he can think of because it's, you know, involving necrophilia. They imply that Karloff is raping victim yeah. virgins before the sacrifice. Then he keeps their corpses suspended in the cellar of this, of this old fort in his new home. And um, so I think it's more like 
what's the worst, you know, all for armor, what's the worst thing you can think of? And that was it, you know, he was trying to go that route. Well, I think what's interesting about that is during the production of this film, the studio chief left town and he pretty much left Ulmer to film a host of craziness that wouldn't actually make the final cut. Now, he filmed, Ulmer filmed scenes including rape, a more vivid scene of the results of Polzig's visceration, and a plot about Joan... Now, here's where the black cat comes in, about a plot about Joan actually transforming into the black cat. Now, back then, right. back then, unfortunately, back then, as was practiced with Hollywood or all other studios, was deleted scenes were permanently destroyed. They weren't saved on a shelf somewhere. So we will never see these scenes, Coy. How disappointed <laughs> are you? We won't see more depravity. Very, because the the apparently the first version of the film they they they've reshot like seventeen minutes, and you're talking about a sixty four minute movie. Yeah, seventeen minutes were cut and reshot, and a, a lot of the ending is is. But it's, yeah, it's it's kind of hurts your heart to think you could never see it <laughs> ever, and it's got gone forever. You know, when, when you're talking about the original ending of this film and Almer, because Lugosi was a bad guy in the original version of the film. He mm-hmm. wasn't the hero. He was equally bad with with Polzig, and he. Um, Essentially, it becomes a contest in the original version of the film between uh, Polzig and Vertergast to take the woman, yeah. right? Take the virgin. Mm-hmm. Now, can I ask you this, Coy? Because I was reading this analogy, and this never struck me when I watched it. This is purely something I was reading up on. Okay, we have the Peter Allison, the mystery writer, and his character is a supposed, supposed. Now, what's your take on this? Coy, he's a, a supposed analogy for America's role in World War One. They intervened naively, they caused chaos, then they left, oblivious to the disaster they left behind. Now, this is supposed to be exemplified by, near the end, Peter shoots Vitus while he, after he flays Polzig as he attempts to release Joan, who is held captive. And then after that, Peter kind of nonchalantly goes off back on the train, reads his reviews, and his character is supposed to exemplify the analogy the America's role in World War One. I. I I never seen that at all. Hmm. Well, I think that uh, it is it is interesting that you know Peter could give less of it couldn't give less of a damn about <laughs> killing Lugosi. Like when he's on the train, it's like finally uh, you know this run does say there's no remorse there. But um, I think that have you read that analogy I, before? I have not. Ooh. I would say something like that unintentional yeah. i do not i do not think that that was subtext you do think elmer was but, going or P, uh, or kane was going for that <laughs> i don't know i i think i think you have you have to put two in a in a hollywood film you have to make two american characters central to the action there so to give, to give what they perceived as their core audience somebody to relate to i think almer probably would have preferred not to include americans characters in it well, it's interesting you say that because the kind of main selling points of the film would really be Lugosi and Karloff. I especially like how Karloff is billed in the opening credits as just Karloff. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, like, his, like his first name is excised entirely for some reason. So, <laughs> S- superstar, yeah, like superstar. Garbo. Type exactly. Of. So do you think the reason that people like Lugosi and Karloff were so popular, especially in horror films, is because of how different they sounded? Because you had Lugosi from Hungary, you had Karloff from the UK, for example. And they made a huge living in these horror films. Do you think it's because they sounded different, they talked different, they kind of acted different? So they were a perfect kind of 
counterpoint to the American stars of the film, as you were saying before. Yeah, I think see see Karloff doesn't always have to be the heavy. I don't think um, he does. He does have a British accent, but that's something that Americans do not see a British accent as exotic, right? Mm-hmm. It's something. It's something that just accepted that you know it, it doesn't it doesn't seem particularly foreign to Americans when they're watching movies. It just, There's nothing special yeah. about this, Wade. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. But but a Hungarian accent is very, to Americans was very exotic. And so, you know, yeah. that, I, th- I do think there's that contrast that, that Karloff's less different. So so with, with Lugosi, unfortunately for him, he is never going to play a romantic lead here. Not that Karloff's going to get many roles yeah. as the romantic lead, but 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 you know, Lugosi was very handsome, and he could have. I mean, he play, he did play romantic leads on the Hungarian stage, the, and he was a, a um, an idol, yeah. you know. Well, Dracula's borderline a romantic lead in a sense, I suppose. It is, yeah. it is, and I think he got he had a lot of attention yeah. for that from women, especially when he was on stage on Broadway doing it. Was it actually not true that he was also reluctant to play Dracula because, like you say, he played them in the stage version, like for example, Marlon Brando did when he played Stanley Kowalski, and I think Lugosi wanted to avoid any kind of typecasting because when you think of Lugosi, you think of Dracula, you think of him as the horror guy. So, do you think it was true that he just didn't want to be playing these horror films? He would maybe like to have branched out, maybe even try to play those romantic leads. I think Lugosi understood enough about his image that. In Hungary, he could play those roles for a Hungarian audience, but Americans w- weren't going to accept him in that. Um, Lugosi's this kind of infamously bad business yeah. person, and he always had bad agents, and he essentially begged to play Universal to play Dracula and got a pay cut because of it and um, was never really smart about building his in- screen image. He took whatever jobs came along, <laughs> And um, just because he always needed money. I mean, I think he filed for bankruptcy in 32 <laughs> after the height of Dracula. He was that bad with money. Jesus and he um, always, at that point, he's just always behind. And he's just going to take anything that's offered to him. Karloff was much more, was much smarter about building his screen image. And Karloff had did, uh, he's the one who really didn't want to be associated with horror films. And he did like The Lost Patrol by John Ford. And he did The House of Rothschild. Um, This is between doing Frankenstein and the Mummy and doing The Black Cat. So he had these prestigious roles, you know, in prestigious films. And he was always kind of building that, uh, and of course, later on, he had a stage career and like arsenic on old lace, and and that's just something Lugosi never. Maybe maybe because of the heavy accent and not not a strong command of English to hurt Lugosi. I was always interested to see them starring opposite each other because, and we spoke earlier about Ed Wood. You were kind of led to believe that they didn't like each other. There's that famous scene in Ed Wood where somebody asks Lugosi to sign an autograph. He's like, oh, I loved you in that film as, as Karloff's psychic. He's like, Karloff's psychic? And he just flies <laughs> off the handle. But right. apparently they did actually like working together. They did eight films together, I think. And apparently yep. they were never friends, but they right. always had an amiable relationship from what I've read. Yeah, I, and I think it's one of those things that people want them to hate one another, and people want them to have this intense rivalry and fight. 
And the media, even during the time of the Black Cat, would talk about these dust-ups that um, Lugosi was pissed off that Karloff was taking a tea break at 4 o'clock every day, which tar- Karloff had in his contract. He had to get a tea break every day at 4. <laughs> that is one of and the like- most English things I've ever heard in my life, a contractual tea break. I think that's just anti-British sentiment, Wayne. I think it's anti-British He really did. <laughs> he really did. And um, Lugosi would just, like, tap his foot waiting on you know, and, and always, but, but I mean, the the two. I think, and in, in reality, they were rivals. The Karloff is much more successful. Um, even in this film, I think Karloff was making almost two thousand dollars a week. Lugosi was making a thousand dollars a week, and I think that Karloff can be nice about Lugosi always because he's the winner. And Lugosi was a complete gentleman and never said anything ever negative about Karloff. I do think there was some jealousy there. I do. He's human, and he's losing to to Karloff. But they always had a good working relationship. They did not dislike one another. Well, it's kind of they're tied in in for me in a way because they both came to prevalence or prominence in 1931. Now, in 1931, Bela Lugosi was in Dracula. Boris Karloff was in Frankenstein, and they kind of never got away from each other. Now, Wayne, you said a moment ago they did eight films in total together. What is kind of the highlights of those eight films? Obviously, we've got The Black Cat. What else are we going for here, Coy? If you were to guide somebody to say, look, these are the essential Boris Karloff Lugosi films together, what would they be? I'd say one one I would go for is The Son of Frankenstein in 1939, which uh, Bela Lugosi creates the character of Igor. And it's not the, like, Dwight Fry um, sidekick that you get in the 1931 version. It's a very... Uh, it, it shows it, it really shows more than anything Lugosi's skill as an actor and the type of character work he could do. Um, Karloff playing the monster in that one. That's a great team up. Um, the Body Snatcher, directed by Robert mm. Wise in, in 1945, um, is wonderful. Um, that's a Karloff's the main character is Mr. Gray. It's the the Body yep. Snatcher, right? The Robin Graves for a doctor, and it's one of Karloff's best performances. And Lugosi has a minor role in that. And I, I th- those three stand out, but I mean any of them are good. The Raven's fun. Yep. If you want to watch one where Lugosi dominates, the <laughs> if you want to see Lugosi dominate Karloff, the Raven's the one because Karloff plays the sidekick in that one. So, what do you think the audience gets from one that they don't get from the other? What do you think sets them apart? We know the films have been in together. What, on a personality-wise, what is each actor bringing to a scene? Which what's each actor bringing to a film that the other can't do? I think Lugosi always brings this this a sense of the romantic yeah. to to films, and he can be um, this type of, of of a sinister sinister villain who doesn't seem like a villain yeah. always. You can't judge him on the outside. He looks good. He's handsome, and he's um, and he's commanding, and he's tall. And uh, Karloff, uh, on the other hand, always seems like he's up up to something. You know, he looks like he's bad news. <laughs> Generally, Karloff looks like he's bad. Karloff could be very, uh, not in real life, but in his film, he played mean. Have you ever watched the film Bedlam in 1946? 
uh, he can be extraordinarily cruel, you know, like Vincent Price was always great at playing cruel characters. Carlos great at playing cruel characters. And I get the, you can get this kind of subtlety and cruelty with Karloff, and you can get a romanticism with Lugosi. That, and I think they, they really go together and pair perfectly. I like the fact you mentioned Vincent Price there, because when I think of Bella Lugosi and Vincent Price, I think of them as the people who are really good at talking, because they had the very good voices, they were able to deliver the lines really, really well. When I think of Karloff, I think of more of the guy with the looks, the guy with the sinister looks, because a lot of this film, right. he's like sat there, and Vitas is talking about whatever happened during the war, and Karloff sits there with this angry stare. He lets Lugosi talk, there's the score in the background. When he played Frankenstein, he said basically nothing until Bride of Frankenstein when he was taught to speak. So he's the much more kind of commanding physical presence, whereas someone like Lugosi and Price, they were more known for their diction, for their delivery of dialogue. Yeah, and I think that... Vincent, I, I, I love Vincent Price. So if you talk about a movie like Witchfinder General, yeah. where um, he's playing Matthew Hopkins, he shows how cruel he could be, right? And he, and, he, and I, I, th- I think Karloff does that really well. Dracula is a sense of, of Bela Lugosi playing a cruel character, but he never gets away from wanting to be the romantic lead. <laughs> I think there's, there's always that in him, and you don't really see that as much. I think Vincent Price has some of that, but he can, he can let it go in a way that Lugosi cannot. Well, sound and the space of sound is extremely important to this film, because I believe the sound design was by Heinz Romheld. Now, I believe most of it was Chopin, it was already established classical songs, but apparently 80% of this entire film is soundtracked. There's music almost yeah. constantly through the entire film, which wasn't typical for talkies of that day. They were very sparse. When did that change? Because obviously in the si- silent era, we would have music that played throughout the film. And then when people, when the talkies came about in the 1930s, you know, it changed. So is there a tie between this film and the silent era? Yeah, I think there's there's a wonderful book um, called Uncanny Bodies: The Coming of Sound and the Birth of the Horror Film, and it and it really and it really just breaks down all this stuff uh, in an excellent way because one of, one of the thoughts in like early talkie films was that audiences wouldn't buy it if there was this music playing in the background. So you always had to have a source of the music. So if you watch Dracula with Todd Browning, who's a silent filmmaker predominantly, then gets in the talkies. Um, all the f- music in Dracula is either coming from the theater where yeah. they're there <laughs> and they're playing music or the music box, where you can always see the source of the music. Um, that changes pretty dramatically in 32, 33, as they, you kind of get these, these um, scores yeah. that... Um, aren't coming from an obvious source there is in black cat the radio yeah you know there is that so there is some of that in there like karloff turns on the radio he's showing off his radio but there's also this background like you say most of the film scored so which was unique for the time but i guess people thought that people in that book uncanny bodies it talks about that people audiences regarded as artificial you know it's like an artificial element to have music so that's an interesting point you're saying the music essentially, in most cases, had to be diegetic. It had to be sourced from the locale right. where they were. And that kind of like contrasts, in a way, what we were all saying before. We didn't have this need for realism. But you're saying, and yeah. could you make the argument then, when talkies came into existence, that there was a slow growth, an in, incremental growth to the, the need for realism, in a sense. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it, it is an interesting contradiction because... 
people, I mean, there were critics of talking films that, you know, in the late 20s where they thought speaking on film was a gimmick that yeah. would go It'd away. be the death of cinema. <laughs> but it, wouldn't be, it wasn't the art form. Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of stuff they're picking out, singling yeah. out, you know, as being art, artificial is very interesting. Um, but the, but but then again, when you read these things, it's more like theorists from the side of the people producing the movies than it is actual audience right. complaints about about it. So the consumers of it really aren't saying that. It's just kind of wonder. I bet audiences won't buy that. <laughs> I, I, when you when you read these books, it's always like some some executives worried about the audience buying it you do wonder if it was something to do with the technical limitations as well because if you watch great films like singing in the rain or the artist or babylon as well i know not as many people seen babylon but i loved babylon babylon was like it was like the r-rated singing in the rain it was great (laughs) and it showed that transition from silent films to talkies and how difficult it was and how they hadn't considered a lot of things like back in the silent film era you could film three movies in one room because you didn't have to worry about anything crossing over but then suddenly you had all of these other problems to deal with so i wonder if trying to incorporate sound and music it was just very difficult for them which is why a lot of them didn't do it initially but i love the fact it's in this film it works for me in a psychological horror film because the score always playing always being in the background it's like a specter it's like something constantly hovering over like you're never truly alone in this house you're never truly safe because this presence is just always there I was reading something interesting that Carl Lemley was upset about the use of, you know, this classical style of music because he thought it was non-commercial. Oh, really? <laughs> it, 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 it wasn't with the jazz age, was it not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't know. I don't know what he wanted in place of that, but he felt that it was maybe audiences would think it was too highbrow, too smart, too smart for its own good. It kind of ties uh, into a Karloff's character, though, doesn't it? In a in a weird way. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it hurts the film, and I don't think people would have rejected it based on the fact that it was, um, you know, kind of artsy music that they're, that they're using in it. But it does, I think, tie in with the, the art of posing in it, you know, and what, it, what he's built there. And it kind of does go along with his his Because his many people see this as almost as an anomaly within the universal horror f- mode of 1930s. And in many ways it is. It's, dare I say, it's almost the art film of the universal canon. I think it's a very interesting film and it's very unusual. There's so much in this film that, like we were just saying, you know, we've got the non-diegetic sound, which makes up 80% of the soundtrack. We've got the art deco designed house in what could be a traditionally gothic story. I mean, we're breaking quite a lot of barriers here. We're taking these guys from Frankenstein, from Dracula, we're bringing them into the new age in many aspects, and we're putting them in this completely different world that audiences in 1934 maybe weren't prepared for. And I think yeah, they're, they're also human monsters. Right. You know, you're talking about, this is really, you could talk about the satanic side of this film. They never say in this film that Karloff's actually a successful occultist. <laughs> you know, he could just be, he could just be fooling around there just to have orgies and stuff and just as kind of an upper class way of, you know, play. They're essentially playing and, and yes, but they're not actually conjuring anything. So you could say there's a complete lack of supernatural. I know the cat, they hint at it, but it's never overt that the cat's soul is being transferred. And it could be another black Maybe. cat right, that comes along after it's killed. But that's all, it's all implicit. And they, you're talking about human monsters, which is unique, I think, in the time, you know, 
So someone like Karloff's character could almost be just basically a charlatan. He could be someone who just likes to wear the robe and likes to speak the sure. words because he speaks Latin yeah. in the film. Yeah. He could be someone who just wants to project the image of some kind of could leader, be. some yeah. kind of powerful figure. But like you say, the human monsters, because we're talking the scars of war, the after effects of war, and guilt as well. Like, does think, Karl- yeah. does Karloff's character feel guilt? Bela Lugosi's annoyed at him. It seems like Karloff is almost kind of nonplussed about it. I mean, he built this fancy house basically There's, on the graves of thousands of people. I have to say, I have to say this. There's a scene in it where um, Lugosi is confronting Karloff about what he did and all these things, and Karloff almost looks remorseful, right? He's got this look on his face. But what I think is brilliant about Karloff there is he is a psychopath pretending to be human. <laughs> He's imitating emotion, emotions that are expected from him. And I, that, I've always thought that that was a, like an interesting portrayal. He's too human. <laughs> he's, he's, he's too human yeah. in that moment. But, and, it, and it's it's artificial. Um, and, it, and it really kind of gets his kind of the psychopathic nature of his character across. It's also interesting that Lugosi's capable of such brutality in the film because he skins Karloff. He flays him. Alive. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, this is not normal. Like, normal people can't just go skin. I don't care how mad you are. You can't go skin someone. Coy, you've never been to Scotland. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, that's true. Um, But the uh, fact that he does that shows that, you know, you're telling with two two people capable of of, of just great brutality. And the original way it was written, too, they couldn't show this on film in 34, even before the code. But apparently the way it was written was that he was going to you know, razor off the flesh down to Karloff's waist and that the whole flesh of his body would be hanging down like a coat tied around <laughs> his waist. And that when he gets interrupted, you know, the t- when Peter comes in and all that stuff, when he's getting interrupted or fighting, yeah. um, all that's going on, Karloff breaks from his restraints and gets down on the ground and crawls across the floor without a skin. And his skin's like flapping behind him. And it would have been like and and Clyde Barker's Hellraiser where Frank, the yeah. skinless Frank, is like crawling across the floor. And imagine what the makeup by Jack Pierce would have looked like have been great. with a skinless Karloff. You know, it would have been absolutely incredible. And I think people would have, you know, talked more about this movie <laughs> if that image was there. But that image was in Almer's mind. And you have to give him credit but for that. But we do get the great German expressionist stylings of it shown in shadow. And this film is all shadow yeah. and light, like film noir, like German expressionism. But here's what, much to what you're saying. This film has a, a grand, let's say, a grand perversity on Karloff's behalf. I mean, I don't know how they got away with this. I think that it's hinted that, well... I mean, he, he's encased in glass, several of his dead wife or coveted women, whatever they are. He is had a thing for Lugosi's daughter, who he's now married to, for I think he says about 20 years and she's only like 30. I mean, yeah, <laughs> right, that's yeah. weird. Um, right. he, he's obviously, he grabs the naked statue when Peter and Joan are kissing. Is there always, is there a strong hint in that he's a deviant? Is Karloff supposed to just purely be a sexual deviant or a deviant of all course he's a war criminal a mass murderer and just an all-round bad dude yeah i think polzik in the story is a person who just gets off on um being cruel and hurting people 
that's why I think some of the occultism is a front for him. I think it's a front for rape. It's a front for murder. Um, he's he doesn't believe it, but he wants an audience when he does it, and he wants people he wants people following him, and he wants to be he was a commander in the war. He wants to be the high priest of his own little cult. And I think he's this um, narcissistic psychopath that is, is uh, even in the film kills kills Karen, the daughter. Um, the you know what when um, she talks to Joan and kills her, and it's implied she screams out, you know, and that's all they really show. And there's there's a lot implied there what he was doing behind closed doors, and then she's dead. All those women in the cellar are sacrificial victims from previous rituals. Joan is being set. He really goes out of his way to separate Peter and Joan so they can't consummate their marriage because they were married earlier that day. Mm-hmm. They had to run to the train. So she's still, it's impliedly, she's still virginal. And he's going to try his damnedest to keep them apart so she will remain a virgin. And, um, yeah, I do think he's a sexual deviant, among other things. But uh, Can I ask you, Coy, as a pulp writer yourself, is the greatest tragedy of this film is when all is said and done, when we've watched all this barbarity, this depravity, when Peter and Joan are back on the train, is the worst thing in Peter's mind that he's got a bad review? <laughs> I think the P- P- Peter's the real psychopath of the film. Actually, is that the great like, tragedy? The way- got the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I think to me, like that, that, that characterization, like the man does not give a shit about anybody. No, you could tell him any. You could tell him anything, like talking about you know ten thousand men buried beneath the cellar, and he's like. He just shrugs it off. He just walks off, you know. Um, he's more worried about his honeymoon and stuff. He's a very self-centered guy, Peter Allison, I think. But it is, it is his his tragedy at the end is he got a bad. So how much did you identify with that when you were waiting for reviews of the the seance for the Wicked King death? Were you like, I understand Peter now? Oh, oh, it's hell. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I understand them. Like, if you're in the middle of this tragedy, I'd be checking Goodreads to see if I have any new reviews, you know. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll check back on the tragedy later, but keep refreshing Amazon, see if anybody's reviewing so, so, so what we're trying to say here is that of all the tragedies and all of the grotesqueries in the film, the worst one is basically the leads having bad priorities. <laughs> I mean, he, got, he, no, he, he had good – he had press at least – I th- I'd tell him to stop whining, you know. Yeah, at least he's in the in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Not not everybody can do that. Now this film, let's let's go on it. Nineteen thirty four, Andre Sonwald from the New York Times. Now, when this film was released, it did get quite a generally bad reception. Now, this reviewer, yes. Sonwald, he said the film was more foolish than horrible, and he also says that the story piles the agony on too thick to give the audience a reasonable scare. Okay, I understand that in a part, because like when I watched it for the first time, there is moments that are foolish. There is moments that you think, like when Lugosi's about to shoot Karloff and he jumps through a screen door at the sight of a black cat. But, but, like, what we are examining today, the horrors of war, the PTSD, all these connotations, the subtext, the what you can all draw from it, uh, and I would say it's continuing legacy through the years, because I would say, I can understand people watching this after seeing Dracula and Frankenstein and think, you know, this, this is a bit iffy, like I said before, it's almost like the Universal's art film. So I can understand why people maybe drifted away from it, or they saw it in such aspects. 
But like everything we've discussed, and when you get to the get to the nitty gritty of it, it's got a lot of depth to it. It's just many analogies, like we were talking about the horrors of war, the the battle of good versus evil, maybe man's innate uh, destructibility. All these things, what would you say to somebody if you were to read that review? What does that speak to you? Can you see it? How do you think it's aged? And do you think that guy would have changed his view as time went on? No, I think it's it's not a respectable film for critics in that, in that time because of its genre. And... Uh, it, the fact that audiences liked it, it was the, you know, the, made the most money for Universal that year. It wasn't a failure. That probably makes critics even more angry about right. it because, they, you know, there are films that they would elevate above that that audiences should be seeing. But it was ahead of its time. I think Freaks was ahead of its yeah, time definitely. in 32. And I think this builds upon, this is, this is a similar film in a lot of ways to Freaks. To me, I kind of, I kind of think they're, you know, spiritually yeah. connected and the they're both were panned they both caused some outrage and they were both appreciated much more several generations later i, th- I think there's a lot of subtlety and nuance to the black cat that um is not appreciated in its time it was looking for the these boogeymen right to come in and there's just too much characterization there between lugosi and karloff and too much subtlety and i think it gets into kind of layers of human evil the bad things that people do is saying you know it's always worse than monsters like monsters are like children's stories in comparison to the the bad things that real people do and the bad things that even the character of Polzik did back in the war, betraying and killing all these people for his own selfish ends, you know, to save himself. Well, maybe something like Dracula and the Mummy and Frankenstein coming along was almost setting audiences up that the 30s is going to be the decade of these larger-than-life monsters, of your vampires and your Frankensteins and your mummies, things like this. So something like this coming along and having the the monsters be very human, very recognizably human, having human flaws, the fact it was reflecting a conflict which happened not very long ago. So imagine a lot of people who went to see this film at the time a lot of them would have served in the war. They would have been angry at Lug- uh, Karloff's character. They would have sympathized with Lugosi's character. So they would have seen yeah. a lot of them in the film. Whether or not you like black cats or not, very much <laughs> incidental to the film. The atmosphere of it was fantastic. It keeps a very mostly consistent tone. Something that stood out to me was a part where I think it's the, the local authorities come along. I think we've seen one of them earlier. And they're asking Peter Allison and his wife, where are you going? And they say, we're going to this town. And there's like a kind of almost like Abbott and Costello comedy routine between the two cops. Like, oh, no, you must go to this place. And, oh, no, you have to visit this yeah. place. And it's done in very kind of over-the-top, exaggerated, very kind of comical accents, which felt kind yeah. of weird. It was like a Marx Brothers film. I just been kind of spliced into the middle of it. Yeah, and I feel like that's imposed by the studio. Like, that, that is something that you have to insert comic relief to relieve the tension mm-hmm. in that time. So when you watch these films, like Dracula has Martin, the attendant, you know, for... <laughs> Um, at, who's, yeah, <laughs> um, at the at the at the asylum? Who's like shooting at the bat and stuff like that? You always get that, and I think it does fill out a place. It's a of its time, as opposed to relieve your terror, I guess. 
make you take a deep breath and laugh a little bit of this awful routine. It is weird. It is kind of out of place. But like you say, maybe it was a case of they didn't trust the audience to get to the film without giving them a laugh here and there. But for me, yeah, the atmosphere very much works. I love the interplay between Karloff and Lugosi, the way they both deliver their lines and they work off each other in their very own unique, distinctive ways. And I like that score, I like the inclusion, how it works. It's not just incidental, it feels like it's something like a spectre lurking over the proceedings. And yeah, the look of the film, absolutely stunning. I would completely agree, Luke. This wasn't really on my radar till Coy Hall brought this film to us. And I think both Wayne and I had never seen this film before. We're great fans of it. We're horror guys. We're classic movie guys. But for whatever reason, this kind of fell through the wayside. And it took you to bring it to us, Coy Hall. And as we said, look, sometimes it can be superficially silly. There's a lot of depth, though. There's a lot of... Um, theming going on. There's a lot of analysis to be had and I think Almer's created a terrific film and it is kind of a shame he got relegated to Poverty Row but you know that's what it is and at least he's left us this, he's left us Detour, he's left us some great films but Coy Hall for now what is your plans going forward? Do you have any works and you want to promote? Is there anything you want the audience to look forward to? Yeah something that ties into this episode today actually I'm editing an anthology that's going to be released next year on horror stories from World War One, the First right. World War from this time period. And um, that's going to be, uh, it's called Death's Other Kingdom, Horror Tales of World War One, And that's going to be, I'm editing that as nine stories based on the war, and that's going to be out in May of next year. So that was our thoughts and opinions on The Black Cat from 1934. Thank you, Coy, for suggesting this film to us. It's been a lot of fun taking this trip back in film history, and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. That wraps up episode 71 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. Join us next time when we'll discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. (laughs) 